Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Who's he? Uh, well, he's a friend of my grandfather's, and he's been winning all the major auto racing trophies there is to be won in the world. That's not bad. He just said that he needs our help desperately. Can we get over there, do you think? Yeah, sure, we'd help him. Woo! Oh, wow! Look at that car! Wow, wow man! How's that? That's, Yo, that's a well, real machine. That's all right. T.N. Crumpets. You must be David Jones. That's right, yes. Hello, pleased to meet you, sir. My grandfather talked to you many times. Uh, you have some trouble with the car here? Yes, well, you see, I fear some absolute rotter is sabotaging my vehicle. Take it off yourself. Well, sure, I'm with that for that. <laughs> we'll take a look under the thing. Yeah, here, let's find okay. something. <laughs> I'll bet that was the work of saboteurs. No, my mechanic does that all the time. Certainly no improvement. Well, how is it, Yankee? The car's in perfect tune. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. I'll show you. So, Crumpets, I see you're having some trouble with your car. I see you're having some trouble with your accent. I'm having trouble with the car. Car's fine. So why is your engine all blown up to smithereens? Because well, uh, it makes it lighter. Lighter. Easy. Sure, lighter. that's it. It makes it lighter and it's no, easy to race with. You know? Faster. Watch this. Oh, oh, oh. You take this, you blow it up, and you take them off, and you roll it back. Don't take it up. It's uh, excess, you see. <laughs> well, see you at the race, crumpets. Well, we really fooled them. There's only one problem, you know. How can he get the engine back together? I was just going to say that. That's, that's the problem. Okay, try it. Dear. Well, it uh, sure sounds better, Mickey. Oh, <laughs> You know she's running better than ever. Jolly good show, you... If I win the race tomorrow, the name Klutzmobile will be on the lips of every car buyer in the stadium. They will tell their friends, and by tomorrow night, the name Klutzmobile will be known throughout this country and tomorrow the world! 
Und stopp! Nobody is allowed in here unless they are authorized Klotzmobil personnel. Do you understand? Oh, yes. To be in here, you have got to be a Klotz. Well, here you are with the car all finished. This is a car. Nobody to drive it. Hey, now, wait a minute. Wait, I'm wait. a British subject. So, you? So, if I'm a British subject, maybe the Racing Commission will allow me to drive the car. Well, it's all right with me. Again. Time. What's the problem now? Same old problem. What's that? The car stinks. Ach, du lieber. What have you done? You have ruined my engine. No, no, no. Nonsense. I haven't ruined your engine at all. Anything that I take apart, I can put back together. Now, do you have any needle and thread? Uh, how about some glue? Have a, uh, some clay? I tell you, Baron, this boy's not a mechanic. Wolfgang, we must get the Klotzmobile running again. I must think of a way. I must think of a way. I think now. The car is running perfectly. What shall we do? Herr Baron, I have a wonderful plan to get their engine. I will announce on this loudspeaker and call them up to the reviewing stand. And then we will steal their engine. An excellent plan, Wolfgang. Only I will do the announcing. Why you? Because they will recognize you immediately from your accent.
listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our 600-plus shows, check out NostalgicRadioandCars.com, the archive page. Good evening, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, that 600 show actually snuck up snuck up on us a little there. Yeah, it did. <laughs> well, you know, we're on 12 years. Coming on 12 years in May. 12 yeah. Years. That's pretty good. So, anyway, yes, we are steady, Eddie, and we're consistent. Now, I'm sure your mom would have appreciated that little clip that we played with the monkeys. Mm, yeah. I was kind of like trying to figure out some... Because we, we've obviously reached out to the monkeys over the years, and uh, recently, again, with uh, Mickey Dolans, and... Um, so, but I stumbled on that clip, and I actually remember that episode, and that was kind of funny. And uh, one of the cars that was featured in it, besides the Monkey Mobile, which was built by Dean Jeffries, who was also a guest on our show many, 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 many years ago, was one of the top uh, custom car guys out of California, um, along with Cushenberry and Gene Winfield and uh, Daryl Starberg and, and, of course, Chuck Barris. And uh, the car that they used in that movie that was uh, going to be the race car originally was a Ford-powered when everybody ran pretty much ran 289s back in the day with Cobra leather valve covers and stuff like that, was a uh, the Manta Ray, which was a custom car also built by um, Dean Jeffries, and it was built on a 50s Maserati race car chassis. It was a real interesting car, and that car was actually one of the feature cars at one of the uh, at Pebble Beach a number of years ago. Of course, Gene Winfield was there. Unfortunately, uh, Dean Jeffries and Cushenberry and people like that are no longer with us. But Gene was there. Um, Daryl Starberg, I think, still around. We had him on our show a few years ago. He is the bubble top king. Uh, but this particular car, the Manta Ray, had a bubble top that went up and down, um, which was kind of handmade by Dean Jeffries himself. And um, But for the purposes of the TV show, they painted the car gold as opposed to white, and, uh, and, the, and the bubble was not on the car. But it's a cool episode, so if you get a chance, uh, check it out. we got a very special guest for you this evening. Um... So we're going to kind of go into that here in a little bit. We're going to fire up the stereo here, and because uh, this gentleman is just a fascinating guest. He's been on our show before. He's an alumni. He's a personal friend of mine, and I truly, truly enjoy um, having him on the show. So, Bobby, go ahead, and since we're on the monkeys thing, let's play a little monkeys. And while we, what I do on this radio show is talk, and I use a lot of words, so here's a song by the monkeys called, titled, Words. Look 
Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Okay, we're back. Well, if you want to know where all the car shows are in the state of Florida, don't forget to check out flacarshows.com. Now, coming up here in a couple of weeks over at the World Equestrian Center is the, uh, I'm going to say, inaugural Showstoppers Collector Car Auction. So that should be pretty interesting. We'll have some more information on that. Uh, we may even have one of the uh, founding members um, on our show, founding members. I'm used to, you know, music groups. It sounds like yeah, a band. Yeah. <laughs> one of the, uh, the uh, co-founders of... Uh, founding the, member of Showstoppers. Showstoppers, <laughs> sounds yeah, right. like a band. All right, let's worry about them guitars. Uh, anyway, um, and he will probably be telling us a little bit about some of the highlights. Uh, Sebring 12 Hours is coming up, and as well as the Sebring Historics with our good friends over there at HSR. Um, let's see, what else? I think uh, oh, then Bear Jackson's coming up next month. So we got a lot of stuff still on the schedule here, you know, before it gets too warm. Moultrie George is coming up. Uh, if you're a Ford guy, uh, all Ford uh, Columbus, Ohio swap meets coming up here in a couple of weeks. A lot of really, really, really cool stuff. Um, this weekend, we have uh, Lightfoot City's got their little event going on on Sunday. Uh, Downtown Inverness has a car show. Saturday, Crystal River has a car show. And Saturday afternoon, the Villages car show. I think that pretty much wraps it up. Bob, let's go ahead and fire up the stereo. And Now, this song I'm going to play here is from a band, uh, kind of call it classic bubblegum music out of the 60s. It's by Ohio Express. They're the ones that did Yummy Yummy. And, uh, and the Archies did Sugar Sugar. Now, what people don't realize is these bands were actually studio musician bands. They weren't really actually bands. And the promoters, guys like Don Kirshner and stuff like that, gave them a name you know, for the PR purposes. So this song is titled uh, Sausalito, isn't it, Bobby? Uh, yes, it is. Sausalito is the place to go. Uh, okay, well, I'm from Marin County. Our guest is born and raised in Sausalito, so we got a couple of Marin County guys on it, and this goes out to my good friend. And I will save the name here for as a surprise. But anyway, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars, and uh, don't touch the dial. We'll be right back with a very, very special guest for you this evening. There I found, there I found Sausalito. All in the view Every shade marmalade Every hue Houses on stilts Grow out of the sea Everything's growing there It's growing for me You gotta go there Everything grows there When you get high on the mountain It snows there
of Baby Doll as the killer for hire. With the whole eye-stopping city of San Francisco as the background for the first feature-length lineup manhunt to hit the big-size movie theater screen. Well, the bag belonged to a man named Dresser, Philip Dresser. He came on the Insonia this morning. Philip Dresser? Well, he's one of the richest men in California. You've run across him before? Regularly this past year. What do you mean, Jack? Tourists. Reputable travelers being used as innocent smugglers. The tall man in the hover. The lady in the kit. Is she a carrier? Those are the brakes. Please leave us alone. We'll forget about the doll. Just leave us alone. I had line you fed me. Thought I bought it, huh? I think I'm a passing with a good thing. Put it all over my face. The never-before-told super chase crime hunt story 30 million loyal lineup fans have been waiting for. Too big, too hot for TV. Hitting with police file impact. Authenticated by the San Francisco Police Department. Somewhere out there, a couple of hired gunmen in town to do a job. Maybe right now they're lining up that Smith & Wesson 38 on another target. Ride with the San Francisco Police Department's top crime hunters as they zero in on crimedom's top killers. Hi, everybody. This is David Hall, racing driver, and speed company. You're listening to Radio and Cars. All right, you're back. We're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is uh, one of America's foremost independent car designers and one of the most recent Motorsports Hall of Fame inductees. I'm delighted to welcome, I'm honored to welcome back to the show, my good friend, Peter Brock. Peter, how are you? I'm doing great. How's it going back there? Pretty good. Well, you missed the first song part of it because it was actually a song by Ohio Express, and it was called Sausalito is the Place to Go. And I know you're from Sausalito and, you know, being a fellow Marine County kid. And then, of course, the San Francisco thing. Yeah. So (laughs) I got to ask you, um, what was it like for you this past Tuesday uh, as a Motorsports Hall of Fame inductee? What was it like for you? What did that mean? It's very, very hard to, you know, express how that affects you because, you know, you walk into the uh, the Hall of Fame there and there are, you know, a couple of hundred of racing's best-known figures on the wall and you know who all those guys are and you wonder, why am I there? You know, you look at what's been done by all of these guys and you just go, you know, I'm way out of my league, but uh, I, I can't can't express you know the uh, the pride obviously that you get because the election on that is by previous winners. They're all your peers. They're the top guys in motorsports, and uh, <clears throat> I think that the even though I'm not really a racer, I'm more of a designer. Uh, they recognized what I did contribute to motorsports and and bringing help, bringing America into international recognition, winning the World GT Championship and winning Le Mans with uh, the car that I designed. So from that standpoint, uh, it was very, very uh, um, just a wonderful feeling, you know. 
Well, you the Daytona Coupe, obviously, with Carroll Shelby. And then, of course, don't give yourself a lot of credit. I mean, BRE, Brock Racing Enterprises, I mean, you smoked those European guys with that little Datsun. You know, you and John Morton, I mean, did a fantastic job. You and your team, amazing. Well, it was an incredible team. I mean, when you look at the guys that were on it, but it never would have happened without uh, John Morton as our driver. I mean, the guy uh, was just an exceptionally fine driver, and I don't think everybody's in the United States has ever appreciated just how good he was all the way through his career uh, because he's a sort of self, self-effacing guy and never, you know, blew his horn or, you know, had a big name or anything like that. But uh, he's absolutely one of the very best guys out there. Oh, his stats prove it. I mean, there's no question about that. Yep, yep. Um, all right, let's jump back to uh, the early 50s in Marin County, San Francisco. Now, you were kind of like, did you start out as a hot rodder before a road race guy? No, it actually the other way around. Uh, I started out uh, working at a small shop uh, in Marin City, just right next to Sausalito there, uh, uh, the sports car center. And, uh, you know, I, used, I was in grammar school at the time, and I used to go over there after school and sweep up the floors and, you know, wipe tools down and stuff simply because I wanted to be around the cars that were being built at that time. Because, you know, early 1950s, uh, you know, everybody had MGs. That was all there was. So I had a, a neighbor that had one, and that's where he had some of the work done. And I got hanging out there, and it was just a. I loved being there because I'd never realized as a kid that you know you could actually build cars and uh, be part of that group of people. It was uh, just an incredible experience growing up. Where did people race back then? Because I know that was before Sears Point. So was it an Air Force base up around there near Vallejo? Or where where did people race around back in those days? Well, of course, the best-known place, of course, was Pebble Beach. Okay. uh, You notice we raced in Golden Gate Park. Golden Gate, right. Okay. uh, You know, but there were uh, other other races there. We went up to race in Reno, Nevada. And then there was uh, two or three airport circuits around the area that we went to as well. Was Kaladi around back then? Kaladi, Kaladi, Kaladi. Was that around back then? Kotadi. Kotadi, that's it. Yeah, up by Santa Rosa? Yeah, yep. That was one of them. Okay. So, uh, but it was just the the overall spirit of what was going on at that time, because uh, all the cars were pretty equal. You know, if you had a modified MG, that was a pretty hot car. And it wasn't until really the first Jaguar XK120s came in that people began to see that there were other European cars, and people started bringing over some of the uh, pre-war Alfa Romeos, you know, like Phil Hill had, and uh, running those. But but nobody had yet started building real American uh, race cars. The first uh, American-powered cars that were doing well were Allard's. Mm-hmm. And uh, they started out, of course, with flathead Mercury's, and then they started dropping in Oldsmobile and Merc engines. And that was really the hot car for a long time. When did you build the, the Fortilac? Wasn't that, isn't, wasn't that one of your cars? It was a 44 or something yeah, like that? Yeah, with... yeah that, that, was in, that was in high school. you got to remember, I started out doing this stuff when I was in, in the 7th and 8th grade. Oh, wow, okay. So, uh, you know, when I finally uh, I moved down the peninsula from from Sausalito, and down in that area, there were more guys that were interested in hot rods and not sports cars like they had been up in the Sausalito area. Okay. So I sold I sold my MG and and uh, I bought a half finished forty six Ford, 
uh, which I continued to work on. And then when I got the chance, I finally uh, put a Cadillac engine in it with a LaSalle gearbox and stuff. And that was just a really, really super nice car because it, it had great power and great speed and it was super reliable. Um, the, you, your car, okay, so what year would have that been roughly? Early 50s? From uh, from 51 through 54. Okay, because I saw a picture of it, and it had white stripes on it. And I was just curious, because, you know, later, obviously, the Shelbys had it. But Cunningham had, I think, stripes on the car. Did you come up with the white stripe, the blue stripes first, or did Cunningham come up with it? Or was it just no, kind of like I, by coincidence? I did, I did it as an homage to uh, to Cunningham. Because okay. I was so proud that he was an American had gone over to Le Mans and uh, use the American racing colors over there. So in high school, I, I painted my car white with blue stripes, which, of course, nobody understood, and they thought it was <laughs> crazy, but uh, that's the way I had it. And then I you know, began doing a lot of the redesign on the car, and, and uh, from there I began getting interested in automotive design and really made a, a beautiful custom out of the thing and won the Oakland Roadster show with it twice. Wow. In in class, you know, which at that time was the was the biggest car show in the country. So uh now were guys like Roy Brizio around? I mean Roy's dad? Um No, uh Brizio wasn't around yet. They came later. Okay. Uh but but there were some good good car builders up in the San Francisco area. But of course all of the focus was on Southern California because that's where the the magazine uh, Hot Rod was being published, and uh, it was you know easier for them to pick up all of the stuff that was going on there. So people were not as w- aware of, of what was going on up in the Bay Area as they were uh, down in Southern California. But there was a movement down there. I'm trying to think. Gene Winfield was up in the Bay Area for a while, too, He's, and, and a couple other guys. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if he's oh, from Modesto. There were good guys you know, around the Bay Area for sure, yeah. Um, were you? Did you ever do any drag racing or street racing or anything like that back in the day? You know, I've never asked you that question, but I've always just been curious. I mean, if you built this hot rod Cadillac powered Ford, you know, speed's gotta you know come in there sometime. No, I'd go go drag racing, but not seriously. You know, okay. uh, that there was drag racing both seriously on the weekend and of course a lot of a uh, lot of night racing there as well. But I never got into really building that cat engine up to the point where it was super, super competitive. And the car was uh, uh, really too big to be a, a very successful drag racing car. It was more of a super custom halfway between a, a nice sports car and a hot rod, you know, being a 46 Ford. But it was chopped, it was channeled, it was sectioned, and uh, it, it was more of a of a super custom car. Not a lead sled, but... Uh, Sporty looking car. Okay. Um, do you ever? Did you ever go out to Half Moon Bay and race out there at all? I, I go over to Half Moon, but that had not yet uh, gotten built up yet at that point. Oh, it wasn't okay. Um, so when when you built this car, were you kind of like hanging out at a shop, or did you do this in your own garage, or how did how did, how did you kind of complete the car? Well, there's two ways. When I, the mechanical work, when I did on my MG, I did at the shop at Sports Car Center in the Sausalito, and I had all of, all I say, three guys that were the mechanics there that were teaching me the mechanical stuff on the stuff. So they helped me put the engines and stuff back together. And then later, when I uh, began working on the Ford, uh, I did some of the work myself. And then when it got to be really uh, some important metal shaping, I began to learn how uh, that was done. 
and that uh, all the panels were shaped on a uh, on a buck. So you make up a wooden buck, and then you take that over to a place called Cal Metal Shape, and they had big power hammers, and they'd make up these panels that were not yet put together, and then they'd bring that back, and then I had a guy that could do aluminum welding and welded all that stuff together. So it was a combination of 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 learning how to do it and getting to meet the guys that were good fabricators. So I got a, a very good understanding of really how custom cars were built. Okay, now let me just jump around just a little bit. So now, how did you become Carol Shelby's first employee? How did that encounter take place? Well, I'd come back from um, General Motors. Uh, I've been working there. And I came back, I bought my first race car in Detroit. It was an ex-team car from Cooper. And I'd spent the winter rebuilding that car. And then uh, I had just turned 21 so that I could get my driver's license, uh, racing driver's license at that time. So my goal was still to be a race driver. So uh, I quit General Motors to go racing and came out to Southern California and... uh, at my first race out at uh, Palm Springs, the guy that I ended up hitting next to was a guy named Max Balchowski. Okay. And we became friends because he was pitted next to me, and, and I ended up working for Max, chasing parts during the day, and he would help me with my car at night. But the most important thing was is that I got to be around guys that were serious racers, guys that uh, were racing motorcycles at Ascot, you know, guys that were tuners that had uh, serious tuning equipment like flow benches to make cylinder heads better. And uh, so I was learning the whole speed equipment business from guys that were very successful. And it was at that time, 1959, uh, Carroll had just won Le Mans, had returned to the United States and decided that he was going to quit racing, but he wanted to do a couple more races. So he uh, came up to Max's shop, and, and they made a deal where he would drive the old yellow car for two or three races. I think the most important one was the uh, Elkhart Lake 500. So when he would come out to to Max's shop, you know, we'd hang out and whatever. I got to know him fairly well. And he was talking about, at that time, uh, both his dream was to build a sports car, and he actually wanted Max to... Uh, to do the chassis and stuff for him and, and uh, would, ha- would have had me design the bodies for the cars. But uh, obviously he didn't have the money to do it. Max didn't, you know, realize he didn't, so it turned that thing out. So his second uh, interest was in starting a driving school. So at that time there were two fairly well-known American drivers at that time. One was Paul O'Shea, who was a factory driver for Mercedes, just like John Fitch was in the East, and Carol Shelley. So Paul and, and Carol started talking about, you know, going together and doing a driving school. The interesting thing was is that each had an ego and thought they were that it was going to be the Paul O'Shea driving school and Shelby was going to work for him, and, and Carol thought the same thing. <laughs> So when it finally came to a head and they realized that they, you know, Paul O'Shea said, well, screw this. And he went back east and Carol turned to me and said, hey, you want to run this school for me? I don't have time to do it full time. So it was a perfect opportunity because I would be able to, you know, drive at Riverside every day that we ran the school, be around race cars. 
be around a guy that won Le Mans. So again, it was more and more experience. Uh, and uh, so that's what I did. I started out running his, his uh, driving school for him. And you, uh, <clears throat> Yep, go ahead. You mentioned Max Belchowski. Now, he, the gentleman is legendary, and I know that you hold him in high review. Re- regards. So tell us a little bit about, because a lot of people underestimate, he was able to take stuff, American-made stuff, and go out and slaughter, not just beat, but slaughter some of the best that the Europeans had to offer. Tell us a story or two. No, he he was, he was absolutely brilliant. And uh, he understood, you know, what made a fast race car. It wasn't being a pretty, you know, Italian-bodied Ferrari or whatever. It was pure horsepower and super lightweight and uh, good traction. So he designed very, very simple space frame chassis that he could put together in his shop called Hollywood Motors and uh, built these specials that he called Old Yeller. And rather than spend, you know, thousands of dollars to have a special body built, you know, he'd take, you know, pickup fenders off an old pickup truck in the back and, uh, you know, just cobble these things together it was a terrible looking car (laughs) but underneath it was beautifully engineered very very simple and the most important thing was that uh he had an arrangement with buick that he would do the development on the engines Ah. uh, well most of, of general motors focus was of course on chevrolet as a performance he had contacts at uh, buick and they kind of helped him out sending engines out and he continued to develop those engines on his own, and, and they were every bit as good as any of the Chevys running at that time. Just to digress for a second, was there a Tommy Ivo and a Max Balchowski connection there? Because they both ran Buicks. One was a drag racer, yeah. one was a road racer. Yep. There was. Uh, Tommy, again, was one of these great characters that came by the shop and stuff, and of course, uh, he was a drag racer, and because of his Buick experience, he came to Max, and uh, Max did some development on the engines. And again, Tommy was more of a showman. Uh, you know, he built these cars with uh, a couple of Buick engines in them, and, and uh, at that time, the drag racing business was as much show business as it was about racing. So it was the top name to come out with these really wild-looking cars, and, and uh, they were very fast, and, and he was a good driver. So... Uh, it, it built up over time with uh, these main shows, and, and you'd have these top guys like Don Prudhomme, you know, the snake, uh, you know, running against them. So all of these, these names built up out of Southern California and these wild show drag cars. It was a lot of fun being around it. Um, all right, so now Carol Shelby gets to deal with the Cobras. How much of the Cobra development, the original CSX 2000 cars, were you involved with as far as any of the development of, and, and, um, and then when did Ken Miles enter the picture? Well, Ken came along after, uh, we got going with it. I actually did all the original development driving on the Cobras out at Riverside. Okay. Uh, and these are the very first cars that came in. So I got a lot of miles on the car out at Riverside and then came, Ken came in and of course with a tremendous, uh, experience and became our sort of our chief uh, engineer. And again, it was the opportunity of a lifetime because I got to sit next to Ken 
further developing that car. So when he came out to Riverside, he took over the development of the car. And because I was out there either with the school or lived there or whatever, I got to be drive around the track with him a lot. So he taught me everything that he knew about driving, which I put into the uh, the school curriculum. And, uh, you know, he taught me how to, how to explain about driving and about weight transfer and all the important things that you learn about driving a race car. And that simply became uh, the Carroll Shelby School of Driving, but it should have been the 10-mile school of high-performance driving. When, the, when you got the first Cobra, um, now uh, there's a, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of his name right now, Dean Moon? No, Dean, is it Dean Moon? Is that yeah. what it was? Yeah. Um, he kind of got a hold of the first Cobra with you, Carol Shelby, and I don't know if Ken wasn't there yet, but so tell us, tell us about that little, how that all came about, how the car how, got the first Cobra. And then you got to know that the, the first Cobras were not built by Carroll Shelby. Right, they were built in England, correct? No, they were built in Pennsylvania. Oh, now that I never never heard that. That's an yeah. interesting story. Tell me that. Tell me more. Well, uh, when Carroll put the thing together with uh, AC cars, he didn't have any money to pay for them. So he had uh, a fairly good friend, a guy named Ed Hugus, who had two really top shops in the uh, Pennsylvania area, and and uh, Ed offered to back Carol on the program because uh, at that time he was also a distributor for AC Cars, so he knew the people at AC very well. Oh. So he, he paid for all of Carol's first cars. He put Carol in business and actually did the development of the very first car uh, several weeks, the two chassis came to the United States at the same time. Number 2001 went into the, to Ed Hugus' shop, and number 2000 went to California. It wasn't a matter of selecting the serial numbers, it's just the way they selected them to build them. Right. So Ed built the first car up in, in Pennsylvania, and uh, that car was sold to a doctor who had been racing ACs for some time, and he just thought it was way, way too hot a car for him. Sold it back to Ed, and Ed sold that car to the car to a guy that took that car to Europe. And in the meantime, the other car had gone out to California, and we were based at Dean Moon's shop in Santa Fe Springs, and built that car up there. And that's the car that I drove some out at Riverside and, and did the development on it. And the development wasn't that difficult to do. The things that we're doing, for example, was put a better radiator in it because the AC radiator that was in it at the beginning wasn't good. So we put a reworked Chevy radiator in, in the, and that solved all the cooling problems. And But the AC car was uh, not a really high-quality car in terms of the hardware putting it together. So part of the development was just figuring out what the soft metal was in certain parts and replacing all those parts so that it was stronger. So the the very early cars are Roman sector gear, and then later you went to Rack and Pinion. When did that transition take place, and how was that discovered, and why did you decide to implement Rack and Pinion? I mean, we know why. It's obviously better, but still. Well, the Rack and Pinion steering was a, you know, a fairly archaic system, as was the whole suspension, you know, with the transverse leaves front and rear, which mm-hmm. has basically been a develop of the 
old Fiat Topolinos, which had been done, you know, back in 1939. So when Tojiro designed those first uh, AC chassis, he simply upgraded that idea and used whatever parts were around. And the early Wurman sector steering was uh, um, used on it. But the problem was that it had a lot of bump steer and uh, didn't handle very well. So one of the first things that uh, changed it over is when Phil Remington came in with us, uh, was he could see that there was a, a real need to improve the steering. So we converted the first, uh, I think we made about 20, 25 cars with the Worman sector steering. And then uh, they developed with the, uh, we put in the rack and pinion steering, and then the cars were built that way from there on over to AC. And uh, that's the way the, the best 289s were. And then we'll go fast forward a little bit. So all this accumulative experience that you had, including up in Bay Area, you know, working with bucks, shaping metals, now you've got to come up with a really, really fast car to compete with the Ferrari GTO. Hence we have the, the, the legendary and infamous Daytona Coupe, your, yep. your, your, your creation. So what was it like and how long did it take to get that car and then so all the wooden bucks and everything was all that stuff was the first car which was i think what 2287 was the first car built and that's the one you did in the shop 2287 yes yep okay the serial number on that car now the serial numbers didn't run consecutively but it was up there about that that group there but the thing you got to realize is that at that time the cobras were the fastest best racing car in the, in the united states and the whole of racing was changing from the SCCA's amateur status, transitioning to professional racing, which started in Southern California, because the Times Mirror Grand Prix was putting up the money for this professional race. And under the rules on the SCCA, drivers were not be paid. But of course, all the top drivers were being paid under the table and the you know, everybody said, this is ridiculous. Let's not get away from this. You know, nobody wants to be lying. So they formed a separate club in Southern California called the California Sports Car Club. And those were the, the guys that got professional racing really going and backed up the Times Fair Grand Prix. And then, of course, the SCCA realized what was happening, and they realized that uh, it was going to have to go that way. And the Cal Club became the Southern California region of the Sports Car Club of America. So that was the transition from uh, amateur racing to, to uh, professional racing, or at least an acceptance of professional racing and road racing. All right, so then the Daytona Coupe, the, 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 was it a hard sell for you to, to get Carol to, to jump on board on that, that concept? Initially it wasn't, because... Uh, when we ran, of course, in the United States, all of our tracks here are about two and a half miles in circumference, and the top speeds on these tracks are seldom over 140 miles an hour. So the Cobras were absolutely the best car for that. They were light they were and fast for the quick handling, but uh, they only had a top speed of about 160 miles an hour. The Ferraris at that time were already reaching 180 miles an hour, and there was no way that uh, the Cobras could compete against them. But Carroll 
wanted to go to Europe and race the Cobra. So I had not told Carol that I had designed cars at General Motors when I went to work for him. I was looking for a ride driving a Cobra. Wow. So I, I uh, began to tell him a little bit about the realities of, of um, aerodynamics for cars, and he became pretty interested in what I had to say. So I convinced him that, you know, if, if under the rules you could change the body on an on existing car and uh, it would qualify as still as a production car. So uh, he was interested in the project, and, and uh, so I, you know, made up some drawings and stuff, and he got pretty excited about it. So then he took that to the, his chief engineer, which was Phil Rington in the shop, and absolutely shot the whole thing down, you know, and with, with good reason. Ken told him, look, the car is an antique chassis. It's not going to work. He had already gone over to Europe and seen what Lola was going to build with the GT40s, and he, and he told Carol, look, he said, Ford Motor Company is going to build this really trick new car, mid-engine or whatever. He says, you know, so this idea of, of putting a new body on the Daytona is, uh, you know, not really in your best interest. So, of course, all the guys in our shop followed what Rem had to say. And I made a very formal presentation to all of them, and there was just silence. Nobody wanted to be any part of it. Ken Miles, however, came up and told Carol that uh, the car would be very fast. He understood what I was trying to do. He Because I had taken all of my aerodynamic experience that I'd learned from reading what the Germans had been doing in 1937 and applied it to my design on the Cobra. So he convinced Carol that we should at least build the car. So Remington and, and Miles were absolutely sort of head-to-head on the thing of not doing it and doing it. So Ken uh, offered to, to uh, help me build the car, and we had a, a new young guy that had come in from New Zealand who was not part of the California crew in the shop, and uh, he offered to be the lead guy on building it. So John Olson and Ken Olson and uh, Ken Miles and myself pretty much uh, laid out and built the, the buck for the first car. And then after the car, the first the buck was all done in plywood, of course, because this is what the aluminum panels would be formed over. A couple of the other guys in the shop began to take some interest in it, and they were very good, and they came over as well. So we had about five guys, and we built that first car in 90 days, and uh, there was still a lot of resistance in the shop, and especially with Remington and the rest of the guys. They didn't think it was going to be very important. So on the first day, which was actually February 1st of 1964, we took that car to Riverside, and Ken went out there and broke the lap record by three and a half seconds. Our speed went from 160 miles an hour on the roadster to 180 down the back straight. And he knew right then, because we had short course gearing, and he said, there's no question we're going to be competitive with the Ferraris. So when he immediately went up and called Carol, and when we got back to the shop in uh, California, in Venice, Carol had gone down to the shop and just told all the guys, okay, enough crap. I don't care what all you guys think. Here are the times that the car turned out at Riverside, and we're going to concentrate on it and we're going to take it to Daytona, and I want everybody to dive in and do it. And he had enough leadership there 
and Remington could see that the honesty in the numbers was true, and he came aboard as well. And from that point on, the car became uh, a, a team car. It wasn't something done off to the side and uh, was very, very fast right out of the box. That's amazing. We only have a few minutes left for this this, series, this show tonight, but I do have to ask you one question. You can take credit for designing the original Stingray, and I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to have you come back on next week so we can go into that story because I have a whole bunch of other questions for you. But in your honest opinion, the Stingray versus the Cobra, either one, the two-seater versus an open Cobra, or the Stingray versus, let's just say, the Grand Sport perhaps even – uh, versus a Daytona Coupe. In a minute or so, how would you describe them in terms of competition and the cars? Or is that a very, very long question? The, the Answer. thing is, is that, the uh, again, the, the Stingray was designed as a styling exercise to appeal to the American uh, market. The Cobra was designed strictly as a race car, and uh, you can see the difference in the two. And I designed both of them, but you've got to understand, in doing the Stingray, the leader on that project was Bill Mitchell. And he had gone to Italy and seen what the Italians were doing and came back with some photographs and laid out his brief on what he wanted the car to be. And, and following his directions, I designed the car. And I can't say I designed it. I did all the pencil work on it. I did all the you know, actual work on the car, but it was Bill Mitchell who, his vision of what the car should be that determined what it was going to be, and that's the way we built it. At the time, the uh, the suspension and everything like that, was it was it designed to fit on the old C1 body, I mean, chassis and everything like that? It was this way before they came out with the, in 63, obviously, they started out with independent rear suspension, and the frame was different well, and everything. Started. You've got to remember that Zara Duntoff had come on as chief engineer on the Cobra project, mm -hmm. and uh, the whole project started out to be a very sophisticated coupe. Uh, that's the way it was done, because uh, Mitchell wanted first to design the thing as a coupe. But by that time, in 1957, after the SS Corvette, which had been Harley Earl's last project uh, raced at Sebring, uh, the whole Corvette program was completely canceled by General Motors. Uh, the, the sales were poor compared to the T-Bird, so management looked at it and compared and said, you know, this whole Corvette thing's a loser, so they canceled the program. But it was Bill Mitchell who said, I love the idea, we're going to continue with it in secret, and that's how I got to design the car, because he could not take that project into the Chevrolet studio uh, otherwise, it would have been discovered by management, and they would have, you know, stopped it immediately. So he came down to the advanced studio where I was working, and uh, make a long story short, I got to lead the project and design the car down there. But halfway through, you know, he knew management discovered what was going on, and they cut him off. And they said, this program is going to end right now. You can't put the Chevrolet name on it. You can't put the Corvette name on it. And if you want to continue it, you've got to pay for it out of your own pocket. And Bill stepped up and uh, financed the rest of the car. And consequently, he and Styling owned that car, not Chevrolet Engineering. So Ooh. we got to do the car the way we wanted. And that's why Zora didn't have much say in it, because Chevrolet wasn't putting any money in it. Bill Mitchell was paying for it. 
so it became Bill Mitchell's car. So obviously there was a lot of, of uh, contention between engineering and styling. You know, for example, the split window in the back was a big, big point of contention. You know, that, that Czar didn't want the split window, but Mitchell wanted it from the styling standpoint. So, uh, Well, Pete, we're up against the clock here, so here's what I want to do. I want to bring you back here the next week or two, a couple of weeks, and we'll, I want to finish the story because I wanted – you worked with Czar Dondoff, right, to some extent? Absolutely. Great guy. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to, in our next discussion and debate, I want to have you give me some comparison between Phil Remington and Sora Dundoff. But in, but in the meantime, right. I want to thank you for coming on the show this evening. I truly appreciate it. Again, congratulations on your award and being inducted to the Motorsports Hall of Fame. And I know you've got tons and tons of, of awards. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the show. Say hi to Gail and everybody for me. And uh, we look forward that. to having you on the show. And, and, it was, and it's just really an honor to have you as a guest and to All be right. your friend. Always fun talking history. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. I want to thank my very, very special guest and good friend, Peter Brock, the legendary uh, car designer, you know, racer, race team owner. Um, he's got a company in, uh, they do the AeroVault uh, trailers. Uh, just just, just, just a, an incredible, fan, fascinating gentleman. Anyway, I want you guys to tune into the show every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. for the most fascinating legendary names in motorsports. Truly, ladies and gentlemen, and some great music and stuff like that. Don't forget to check us out here. Uh, well, wait a minute. There's a bunch of car shows coming up, so you probably see these car shows. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WDCF, Dade City. FM 102.3. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.